like to ask for your attention. Any sober investigation of what directs the movement of our mind's capacity to attend to things will come quickly to the conclusion that what directs our attention are a rather small number of factors. Very prime factors in there are um, what Buddhist psychology calls Vedana, the experience of immediate pleasure, displeasure, the immediate experience of comfort or discomfort, the immediate experience of lust or that which is unlustful. Sometimes we feel that in more mentalized ways is interest. Sometimes we feel it quite physically immediately as uh, dilation, expansion, warmth, things like that. So it is crucial that we understand what is meant by this term. Strangely, Western psychology has um, struggled and continues to struggle with an exact understanding of this although we do precisely know what Vedana is, experientially, uh, we struggle with finding reasonably convincing terminology in, in um, most European languages I'm familiar with. So, uh, translators have kind of muddled through with uh, all kinds of things. Sometimes they've just called it feeling, which is um, plain wrong. Sometimes they've called it sensation, which is uh, almost as plain wrong. Um, some other people have tried construing uh, something artificial, which something like feeling tone, which uh, is awkward, but has at least the advantage of providing enough of a stumbling block for us to become aware of that there may be something we may not understand, that there is something that may requ requ uh, require that we make some effort to understand it. Um, it won't surprise you when I say I'm unhappy with all of them, uh, although I probably would gravitate toward feeling tone. Um, what Vedana really is, is um, a quality of mind that is immediate, it's usually short, it's usually reasonably pronounced and it is not complex in structure. It is concerned with lust, with not just sexual lust, but with pleasure. Yeah? From, so the work, the, the, the most accurate work, uh, word is, is um, connected with the Greek notion of, of pleasure, hedone, and we could call it hedonic tone which is absolutely abstract and uh, certainly going to be a showstopper in your conversation over, over, dimmer, over dinner when you com comment on the pleasant hedonic tone of your current experience. But exactly that is what it is. Yeah. It's not even your liking yet, let alone the emotion of joy connected with liking things. And it is crucial that we identify this segment in the both the structure of an event in our experience and also the temporal occurrence, because often Vedana happens very early in 
are becoming aware of any event in our experience, of any object, of any process, any situation. Generally, one of the things we first connect with is the hedonic tone of that experience. Not what it is, not what we think about it, not even what our bodies immediately feel, but that it's just nice or that it's just rebarbative. So if we look how that translates into, oh, by the way, this, uh, depending on which corner you look at it from, there's three or five of those hedonic tones. The first one is called Sukhavedana, pleasant hedonic tone. The second one is called Dukhavedana, unpleasant hedonic tone. Third one is called Nevasukha Ma Naasukha Vedana, which is neither nor. And then there is two variants referring to um, mental phenomena like somanasa associated with uh, happiness and domanasa associated with grief or depression. But for meditative purposes, basically we're interested in pleasant and unpleasant. The one in the middle, the neva sukama. Nadukaya Vedana is not really neutral. It's simply uh, not strong enough in either direction so that we remain indifferent to it. So it's not to be confused with Upeka, equanimity. Now Vedana are not something you can really, you don't really have a say about Vedana when they happen. They're not intentional. In terms of Buddhist psychology, they are Vipaka. Vedana are not intentional. You don't have a choice whether it's pleasant or not when it occurs. You have a choice how honest you are with it. Um, You may have some moral reservations about what you find yourself to find pleasant or unpleasant. Maybe you feel you shouldn't feel that this is unpleasant and this may color. So you may have succession of Vedanas. One is pleasant and then another one which is connected with shame or with... um, feeling slightly guilty or sheepish or the point is that you cannot decide yeah unless with unlike with attention where you can decide you cannot really decide when it comes to vedana what you can decide is as so often is not what your story is but how you relate to your story You can often not decide what happens or what that makes you feel immediately in terms of your conditioning. Vedanas are profoundly conditioned. But you have a choice where to take it from there. That's the truth on many levels. We're all living in stories. And some of us feel that we're living in a good story. Some of us feel in a bad story. For most of us it's a mix. And that story is cooked up from a variety of sources. Some of them have to do with circumstances beyond our control. Some of them have to do with our relationship to the sense world, to the perceptual world, the cognitive worlds we build out of sense and perceptual worlds. So our say in the story itself is limited. However, we always have a major say in our relationship to that story whether we believe it, whether we enact it, whether we focus on that aspect of the story rather than, say, the big aspect of the story, or the story plus the background, 
or the story plus the background plus what I bring to it. So our relationship is the crucial issue where freedom occurs and where much of Buddhist training occurs. And that training entails that we deconstruct in some way the apparent seamlessness in a pattern in our experience. It entails that we learn to find out where the fault lines are and where we do have choices, where attentional uh, direction can come in, where um, re-transformation can start to take place. And that entails, amongst other things, that we acknowledge to which extent we are in our moods and in the economy of our attention propelled by the realm of Vedana, the realm of the experience of the pleasant and the experience of the unpleasant. So, how to do this? Um, important is that we're not going about this in a sort of moralistic way. Yeah? None of this has strictly to do with morals. You know, these exercises, they have ethical implications, but the actual exercises is not particularly moral. It's not particularly concerned with ethics. It's concerned with what's actually happening for me. What actually governs most of my attentional foci and in consequence what I attend to tends to become my experience. So in other words, when I consent that my attention dwells on something, that something will become my experience and a little later my temperament, my character, my life. Yeah. So we have, we have a quite a powerful building stone for what's happening in our lives simply by choosing where our attention goes or acknowledging where it habitually goes and then see whether we have a say in this or at what stage we start to have a say in this. So for today, I would suggest you continue deepening your relationship to breathing, to the breath. And uh, whenever you notice that you're not on, on task, whenever you notice that you're out there somewhere, wherever your particular out there happens to be, um, you, before coming back to the breath and to your plan A, before you come back, you take quickly note what the Vedana, what the hedonic tone of your out there is like. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it mental? In other words, does it come from your memory or your fantasy? Or does it come from your five outer senses? In other words, is it a sound, a touch, a taste, a smell, uh, a sight? Two questions. None of them are analytic. Yeah. You just want scratch statistics. We connect this question to the moment when we acknowledge that the mind has wandered off task, has wandered off from our um, declared plan A, and whenever we find ourselves off somewhere, before going back, after we have acknowledged that we have strayed away and we wish to return, we see for a moment whether that which has taken us away or that which we become conscious of when we are away, whether that is pleasant, unpleasant, whether it's mental or physical. Very simple question. No analysis is needed. You don't need to ask why. You don't need to 
try to think whether what 15 minutes ago you felt was mildly pleasant or mildly unpleasant. If it's gone, it's gone. There's plenty of Vedana every moment. Right now you have tons of Vedana happening. So if you're unsure what this one was, just let them go. Uh, there's plenty more to come. Don't make this more complicated. It's a, a slight addition to a basic a practice of mindfulness of breathing, centering in the body, scanning a moment through your body, and then gradually settling on the breath wherever you have decided you do this. And now acknowledging that some of the stuff that takes you away is of pleasant or unpleasant, of mental or of physical um, character. Then you make your scratch and then you come back to your breath or your feet in walking meditation. If during the course of the day you notice that the pendulum swings into the direction of the pleasant or the unpleasant, just take a little note of this. Just when it makes, hmm, yeah, hmm. Usually Vedana are very simple. They're the easy stuff of Buddhist meditation. Yeah? They're not difficult to gauge. Every Vedana, after a certain degree of intensity, will, will start making internal little sounds. A little sort of grunting jubilation comes up. When it talks, it's no longer Vedana. Then yeah? it's already your mind interpreting. But Vedana is fairly honest. It's fairly straightforward. It's kind of... It does this, yeah. It seems easy to attend. And uh, if it's unpleasant, it's kind of uneasy. It does this, yeah. So take note when that happens during your day, yeah. When you walk, when you change from inside to outside, when you walk from the sun into the shade, or when your feet touch something, or when you smell things, just acknowledge whether this is pleasant or unpleasant. It doesn't have to be ecstatically pleasant or ex- or exquisitely, uh, you know, rebarbative. It's okay if it's just gentle swing. Yeah? Obviously, if you find, say, something in your breathing to be pleasant or unpleasant, uh, take note of this as well. But do not lose the basic meditation on breathing as the mainstay of your practice. Just acknowledge the pendulum swinging into the pleasant or into the unpleasant whenever something reaches a certain threshold. Mostly uh, the subtly pleasant and the subtly unpleasant already take a meditative mind to actually be acknowledged. Um, Most of us are used to a volume of intensity in our lives that um, something has to reach a a certain threshold before we actually register this as pleasant. We know that there is a um, functional pleasure even from using our senses, even in ways that we may not particularly find gratifying or rewarding. It is more uh, pleasurable to make use of one's senses than, say, have no sensory experience in a particular dimension. Most of us only find out about this if we are deprived for a while of particular sensory input, um, either through illness or through choice or circumstance. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us 
live in degrees of comfort and sensory, agreeable sensory stimuli um, that we unfortunately get used to. This is one of the tragedies of this op modus operandi that by seeking pleasure as, an, as a way to find happiness, we create, even if we succeed in finding pleasure and in succeed in finding consequent happiness der derived on the basis of this pleasurable experience, even if we continue to do and be successful at this, the overall balance of unhappiness unfortunately increases because our dependency kicks in. We get used to things. We lose the sensitivity to the stimulus that has yesterday still made us ple give us pleasant feelings. Today, this is no longer enough. Or we are worried about losing it. Or we're so used to having it that we need to make immense sacrifices that we can control it at that level. And we're willing to give up much freedom and much movement and many other possibilities just to maintain the safety that we can continue to provide a particular degree of comfort. Yeah. When sensuality is a huge issue for us, then it's not because we're so uh, addicted to ecstatic forms of sexuality. Maybe you think you are, um, and maybe you, you, you know, it's not something to be sniffly about, you know, ecstatic pleasure. But I would see, from my vantage point, our greatest loss of freedom does not come from seeking ecstatic pleasure. Our greatest loss of freedom comes from our willingness to sacrifice things for our comfort zones, to sacrifice things for our domesticity. We, we become so used to things that provide us comforts and pleasant things, not even ecstasies, just pleasant, convenient, comfortable things that mollycoddle us, that we're willing to sacrifice huge amounts of energy and freedom to make sure that we can maintain this thereby limiting other movements of our heart, yeah, say, like a longing for freedom or a willingness to take uncertainty or the courage to bear risks or the willingness to just make effort, yeah, just to be leaving our comfort zones. I certainly see that as the biggest enemy in my life uh, to freedom and to my energy and to my, my happiness. So consider using this additional question, Vedana question, uh, if you find your mind straying off, just acknowledging what it has strayed off to, whether the, the hedonic tone of that experience you find it with is pleasant, unpleasant, is mental or physical. The distinction between mental and physical is fairly easy. Mental refers obviously to the sixth sense, to the mind base. In other words, it comes out of your mind. It's a discursive, conceptual, imagined, remembered, fantasized dimension. Everything that has to do with sound or touch or smell or taste or bodily contact or visual impact, impingement is physical. Yeah. While the mental may never have happened and be a fantasy or may have happened a long time ago and be a memory, a distorted one may be at that because it's quite likely it has never quite happened as you remember it. It just, uh, you have experienced something and then you remember a slightly edited version and with the 
as the time goes by, that editorial process seems to become bigger and bigger. And, um, so if you want to distinguish these things, pleasant and unpleasant, mental, physical, I think it's fair enough, simple enough. Please practice.
good. Practice uh, sitting, and walking, standing. I'll be seeing people this morning and uh, Trudy and Deborah, you've noticed a little swap over. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.